Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Quick note before we begin, the Finding Genius Foundation, as part of the Finding Genius Podcast, has recently completed a book about understanding viruses. So the creation of this book was to interview 100 virologists, ask them a lot of deep, difficult questions, take the most difficult questions, and then re-interview the top 25 or so and ask them the hardest questions I could think of. And we compiled that all into a book. So you'll see question and four or five experts' answers. Question, four or five experts' answers. There's about 30 questions in the book. I think it's a great read for the layperson and for the researcher. talks about a lot of speculation in the world of viruses, such as are they alive or not, and why is it important? Uh, Why do viruses go latent or hidden or ineffective or sit in a person or an animal or another creature for weeks, months, years? and then suddenly become virulent and affect that person. Uh, so there's a lot of really provocative questions in the book. It's now on Amazon. So if you go to Amazon and type in Finding Genius, you'll see the book on viruses. It's also on Kindle. The Audible version is in production and should be ready in approximately a month. But if you want to go and order it now, uh, you can do so again by going to Amazon or Kindle or go, go to findinggeniusfoundation.org and go to Publications. There's an opportunity as well to get the transcripts of all the interviews and to hear the original interviews themselves. If we had put them all together, the book would be about a thousand pages, but we condensed them down to make it juicy and concise and tight and very interesting. So I hope you'll check out the book. Uh, we're now working on one about cancer, but this is going to be our goal is uh, three times a year to come out with these masterclass books that I think will inspire new scientific research. And I hope you'll check it out. Thank you. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius podcast now part of the Finding Genius Foundation. Uh, today, my guest is Michael R. Strand. We're going to talk about his research. Uh, he deals with uh, parasitic wasp physiology, immunity, and uh, what's called the polyDNA virus. Uh, he's at the University of Georgia, and uh, we're going to talk about his research. So, Mike, thanks for coming. Thank you for having me. Yeah, what got you interested in uh, wasps and parasitic wasps? It goes back a really long time. When I was in graduate school, this kind of interaction was in the early stages of discovery. And uh, it just happened to be something that uh, was going on in the lab in which I was a a graduate, a very early graduate student. And so that was my first exposure. And I stayed away from it for several years. But because of that exposure, I came back to it. And after I had a job, uh, faculty position, the first faculty position I had was at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. That's where I started working with them. What happens with a parasitic wasp? Uh, what does it prey on? What does it do? What's the basic uh, life cycle of it? So the the basic life cycle, maybe we should back up just a little bit. These insects are incredibly common. So nobody really knows exactly, but, but the estimates are that uh, maybe 10% of all the animals on the planet are parasitic wasps. So there's upwards of a million species of these kinds of animals. Nobody really knows for sure. And their life cycle, all of them have kind of the same common denominator. And so that consists of, if you've 
You remember all the alien movies, Sigourney Weaver kind of yep. stuff? Yeah, the that, alien bursting yeah, out of people's chests. Exactly. Yeah. That's pretty much so. The idea for for the for alien um, really came from somebody who had looked up the biology of parasitic wasps. That's pretty much what they do. So the these insects are called parasitoids properly because of the suffix is parasite-like, and the reason they're referred to as parasitoids or being parasite-like is because they're free-living insects as adults. And females um, lay their eggs in or on the bodies of other arthropods, mostly other insects, but some other insect-like invertebrates are hosts as well. Most species are really specific. That is, they parasitize a particular species of host or a very small number of hosts. And so they lay their eggs um, in the body of that host and the progeny hatch from that egg and they consume the host. And then they ultimately emerge from that host to become an adult, which repeats the cycle. Most species are um, dioecious, so in the sense that they're males and females, and they have to mate. Um, in order they mate. and But males don't parasitize things, only females do, because they're the only ones who can lay eggs into the bodies of, um, of host insects. Yeah, I thought there was just one kind of uh, parasitic wasp, but it was unique. But you said there's, there could be a million different species of them? Yes, nobody, nobody really knows. But um, in terms of described species, it's a couple hundred thousand. But estimates are that um, it's substantially larger than that. Virtually every insect on the planet is parasitized by some parasitoid wasp. And because most of them are really specialized, it just means that there are complexes of these um, parasitoids. That's why they're so huge and why they're so um, ubiquitous on this planet. They're just so tiny. Most of these insects are very, very small. And so people just are unaware of them. Wow. So again, the, the mechanism is the wasp will, will find its prey. It's very specialized. It'll sting it. Yep. And what that paralyzes the prey, it lays eggs in it. And then yep. what the prey recovers and thinks it's okay. And, but yet the eggs are growing inside of it, or does it remain paralyzed until the eggs, you know, hatch and eat the, eat the, the animal? Yeah. So some, uh, parasitoids do paralyze their hosts, but the vast majority of them actually don't. And so you can imagine with um, the diversity of, uh, that I'm talking about that variations on the theme of laying eggs in hosts and developing takes on all kinds of crazy extremes. So uh, many of these uh, species are not only are they really specific to a particular insect, they're very specific to a particular stage of that insect. So some parasitoids only parasitize the egg stage of a host. Others parasitize the juvenile stages. Some, you know, a lot of insects undergo what we call a true metamorphosis and kind of like a butterfly becoming a chrysalis, becoming an adult butterfly. That chrysalis stage or pupil stage, many parasitoids just specifically attack that pupil stage or the adult stage. Some of them paralyze their hosts, others don't. Some just feed on uh, blood. Some just completely eviscerate and eat everything inside of the host. Some develop in a very particular organ. Some end up consuming everything, like I said. Um, some uh, produce um, a single parasitoid from a host. Some lay many eggs into a host, and so they produce many progeny. 
and you end up with a giant emergence of, of wasps from the same host. And then a few super crazy ones are polyembryonic. And so they will lay a single egg in a host, but the egg clones itself inside the body of the host and produces thousands of genetically identical wasps that consume that host and emerge. So, and then some of the parasitoids are parasitoids of parasitoids. So they, they lay their eggs inside of a parasitoid that's inside the body of the primary host. And there are secondary parasitoids. And so like Russian dolls. So you end up with such incredible diversity in the biology of these insects that it's really kind of hard to wrap your head around it. Yeah, I'm interested in what you just said. So there's secondary ones. So how many, le- how many, like what's the most extreme case of uh, parasites, parasiting parasites? Yeah. Uh, how yeah, many? Yeah, in the literature, um, the most extreme cases that I know of are um, four to five trophic levels. So a parasitoid of a parasitoid of a parasitoid of a parasitoid of a parasitoid. And um, and it's a little bit of a kind of, a, you know, law of energy conservation. You, it, it's not really the efficiency of, of acquisition of resources as you go from one trophic level to the next is not 100%. So things just get smaller and smaller and smaller. It's not, so it's not sustainable at a, at a certain stage. So that sort of fourth trophic level is the most extreme that is known in the literature that's well-documented. So what happens in a situation like that? What happens to like the, you know, the intermediate parasitoids? Um, is, it, is, is there a staged feeding where, you know, the first one hatches, it eats the original host. Then when that grows fat enough, it activates the next one and the next one and the next one, or do they all go at once? Some yeah. of them find nothing or what happens? Before we continue... I've been personally funding the Finding Genius podcast for four and a half years now, which has led to 2,700 plus interviews of clinicians, researchers, scientists, CEOs, and other amazing people who are working to advance science and improve our lives and our world. Even though this podcast gets 100,000 plus downloads a month, we need your help to reach hundreds of thousands more worldwide. Please visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click on Support Us. We have three levels of membership from 10 to $49 a month, including perks such as the ability to see ahead in our interview calendar and ask questions of upcoming guests, transcripts of podcasts you're interested in, the ability to request specific topics or guests, and more. Visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click support us today. Now back to the show. Again, you know, as, uh, as you could imagine on these sorts of things that uh, in some cases, it's pretty much um, everything all the way down the trophic chain um, ends up dying except for the last one. Huh. And, and in other ones, that's not the case. And so the host might survive and um, only, the, only the parasite inside of the host uh, is, ends up being killed. So, yeah, it goes in lots of different ways. Huh. Uh, and so, again, uh, this is really quite common. Um, um, many, many parasitoids are um, attacked by um, these um, uh, parasitoids of parasitoids, which cr- properly in the literature are referred to as hyperparasitoids. So when this situation happens, uh-huh. what's the order of the parasitization? Yeah, usually the parasitoid of the primary host, of the other type of insect, is there first. And then the hyperparasitoid um, is capable of recognizing hosts that contain its the contain the parasitoid that is the host of the hyperparasitoid. 
Well, this could be you're very useful in stopping this. If you get a hyperparasitoid and you see how it works and what it preys on, I mean, I guess you could deliberately uh, attract that so you could eat the parasitoid and maybe save the host. If you don't die in the process, that's um, that's a real possibility. As you can imagine, one of the reasons that there's a pretty large and old literature about these insects, even if the public's not real aware of them, is that many of these parasitoids, um, not the hypers, but the but I'll come back to hypers in a second. Many of these parasitoids, their hosts are extremely important agriculture and forestry pests, and um, and so for for many for a very very long time, certain species of parasitoids have been used as uh, management tools for the control of um, pest insects, uh, and this is referred to in the literature as biological control. Mm. And so you're using these insects, these parasitoids, as a uh, as a tool um, in pest management in lieu of using an insecticide or using some other kind of control tactic. And right. so for a number of our uh, major pest species, um, uh, they're not pest species at all because of extremely successful biological control programs that have taken them off the table of having to be managed uh, by uh, use of insecticides or other tools. When biological control programs are highly successful, they don't require any uh, additional input. Uh, the parasitoid is introduced to control the pest, and, and uh, when completely successful, it's self-sustaining. So they drive the population of the pest insect down to very, very low levels where they're not causing significant economic damage anymore but they persist through time. And so the parasitoid is just always there and the host is always there, but at a much lower population level. And, uh, and the grower or the manager of the product or the crop uh, enjoys the benefits of this at an extremely low cost. It's kind of like immunization. How many uh, levels are necessary to uh, protect one's crops, let's say? You know, what if, if you just go one level with one hyper, is oh. that as effective as you know, two levels of hyper. Has anyone oh, well, tried that? Is that all of our, our great biological control agents are what we call the primary parasitoids, the parasitoid that's attacking the pests. The, uh, the reason I said I'll come back to hypers is, is that sometimes hypers can disrupt biological control. So if you ended up with a hyper parasitoid that ended up attacking the primary parasitoid that was the biological control agent, you mm. can end up reducing its efficacy greatly or interfering with it being able to serve the purpose that was intended as a biological control agent. So in that sense, the hyper is a negative. Because uh, hypers, um, are hyper events rarer than primaries? If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. Well, the, the hyper uh, prevents the primary parasitoid from being able to control reach population levels to be able to control the pest insect that's the target for control. No, I know, but I'm saying like, like, is it a rare event? Is it common for, it sounds like it's very common for, you know, a primary creature to be parasitized by a parasitoid. Uh, uh, but Sometimes um, a lot of biological control programs, many of, of the pest species all over the world are introduced. So we have some pest species in agriculture and forestry that are native, that is, they were endemic to an area. But more often than not, most of our pest species are introduced from a different part of the world. 
And most biological control programs that are looking for a permanent establishment of the biological control agent, the traditional tactic is to go to the native range of the pest insect. So let's say, for example, um, the pest species has in, been introduced into the United States. People determine that it's, a, let's say, its country of origin was, let's say, somewhere in Asia. So then uh, it usually in its country of origin or region of origin, this isn't even a pest because parasitoids or other predators uh, or parasites um, are keeping this thing at a very low density. But when it gets introduced into a novel region, like being introduced into the U.S., then those things that are maintaining its population at a very low level are no longer there. Um, So people go to the native range seeking to identify what those things are. And so they frequently will introduce primary parasitoid or several primary parasitoids that are candidates for controlling this introduced pest. And in the process, they're screening quite carefully to not introduce any hyperparasitoid that's in that native range. So they're trying to prevent that from occurring. So um, because so many of our pest species are introduced, and because of uh, tactics for trying to screen out or avoid introducing a hyperparasitoid, this reduces the risk of um, accidentally introducing a hyperparasitoid that could disrupt a biological control program. So what's been observed from parasitoids and hypers? Like what are some of the mechanisms they use to identify you know, this, this host parasitoid mixture and to infect it? Well, what people traditionally do early on is they... Um, is they would have the, the primary host species, let's say the pest insect. And when they're, and they literally go on expeditions to the native range and they seek to um, collect the, this pest insect in its native range and they literally rear them. And, um, and from rearing these insects, that is bringing them into a laboratory, um, they, they, parasitoids emerge from them. And then an exercise is put into place to identify what they are. Sometimes they're known, sometimes they're novel. They, they haven't been described by anybody before. And from this, uh, people will then also try to learn a bit about the biology of, well, what stage of the host are they attacking and how, um, how, how is it that they perhaps uh, locate hosts and where are they common and where are they rare, ultimately to try to make decisions about identifying candidates that show potential for um, potentially being able to be used as a biological control agent. And in the process of all that, sometimes hyperparasitoids are discovered as well, or hypers of hypers are occasionally discovered and so on. So it's kind of building a story from a simple observation. Um, And then there are like myself, um, there are people who over a long period of time have studied certain parasitoids and their hosts to understand, well, how is it that they kill the host and how do they manipulate host biology and how do they, how do they complete their life cycle? And so uh, these parasitoids sometimes change the biology of their host greatly. Um, others are uh, pretty crude about the way they they kill hosts, you know, they, they literally just eat them. And that's about the size of it. When you, in this podcast, some of it was um, part of the title was um, about polydnoviruses. Polydnoviruses are just another kind of crazy variant on parasitoid biology, where um, one particular group of parasitoids evolved an association with a virus. 
And this association over evolutionary time has changed greatly. But in effect, the the parasitoid is using um, an ancestral virus to be able to successfully parasitize the host that it develops in. So it's it's in a way sort of formed an association with a with an ancestral virus to be able to successfully develop in its hosts. Um, so in a way, the virus- what, do you, what do you mean? How do you know there's an association between the parasitoid and a palindovirus? Well, the way it was discovered was is that about um, in the late 1960s and early 1970s, people working with um, a particular group of parasitoids that are in a family, two different families of, um, of wasps that are called, the family is Ichneumonidae and Braconidae. These are just huge, there are many, many different families of parasitoid wasps, and those are two especially large ones. And so what was being done at the time was um, people were looking at these wasps and they were doing some work by electron microscopy looking at the reproductive systems of these wasps. And when they looked in the ovaries of these female wasps, inside of some of the cells of of those ovaries contained what looked like virus particles. And when they looked in the reproductive tract of the wasps, they noticed these virus particles were literally accumulating in the the, uh, lumen, that is in the reproductive tract where the eggs of the wasp were. And from this, they ultimately determined that these um, particles contain DNA. And so they not only looked like viruses, but they contained um, a a nucleic acid that would be consistent with um, also being a virus. And then they finally discovered that when a wasp lays its egg into the body of its host, these are all primary parasitoids, they inject a quantity of these particles into the host as well. And these particles infect different cells of the host. And then from this, they learned, people learned, including myself, that these, the DNA in these particles, that there were many different genes, that these particles were delivering to host cells. And these genes um, encoded for products that change the biology of the host in ways that enabled the wasp progeny to successfully develop. And so the notion got established that these these wasps um, required these virus particles to infect their hosts in order to be able to successfully parasitize them in order for their progeny to survive. And then from this, a lot of details began to emerge about where did these things come from and what was their evolutionary history and ultimately discovering that in a way they're not exactly maybe in a technical sense viruses anymore that they've um in a, they they evolved from a virus but they've actually are parts of viral parts of viruses that now have become part of the genome of the wasp carrier, which I know sounds a little complicated, but um, that's actually kind of what happened, and I can explain it. it. they become part of the, the which genome of the parasitoid or of the original host? Of the parasitoid. So if you want, I can take a couple minutes to kind of explain what happened or what sure. appears to have happened. Sure. Different types of molecular biologists and systematists um, could take information from the DNA and those virus particles 
And from this, um, you could use it to discern what they came from. And for the ones that are associated with Braconid wasps, it turned out that evidence suggested that these uh, particles um, are being produced. They, they're related to a family of viruses that are um, called nudiviruses. And nudiviruses are a group of viruses that infect many different types of insects. And so um, by taking some other pieces of information, it looked like that, that, this, that some kind of ancestral nudivirus became associated with the common ancestor of Braconid wasps about 100 million years ago. So very, very old. And then some really remarkable changes occurred. So for a regular virus, like a nudivirus or pretty much all major viruses, the virus particle in, can, ends up packaging the genome of the virus. That is, all of the genetic components that are necessary for the virus to be able to replicate and propagate itself in its host. And all viruses need some kind of other host organism in order to be able to uh, maintain itself. So the host could be a bacterium, the host could be an animal, the host could be a plant. We have plant viruses, animal viruses, prokaryotic viruses. There's zillions and endless numbers of different types of viruses. So viruses can't propagate themselves independently. They need a host cell to be able to do that. But the particle for virtually all viruses contains all of the genetic information to do that. When people started studying the virus particles that were in the wasps, one of the discoveries was is that they contained DNA, but none of the genes that were in those particles matched known genes that have functions in particle replication, that is in a virus being able to propagate itself. And then through studies of the genomes of the wasps, it was discovered that many viral genes were now integrated in the genome of the wasp, and they were all genes that were related to nudivirus replication. So what ended up happening is, is the ancestral nudivirus became integrated into the genome of the wasp, but only part of that genome of the nudivirus ends up in the particles that replicate in the wasp reproductive tract. So the particles are no longer a functional virus exactly. What they become is kind of like a gene vector. So the particle is a means by which genes can be injected, delivered to a host insect, but that particle itself can't propagate itself in the host. So instead, all the replication machinery is part of the wasp. And so the virus, in a way, has become this, what wasps have done is they've taken nudiviruses, they've taken the ancestral nudivirus, and they make nudivirus-like particles, but they package very specialized genes that are important for changing the biology of the hosts that they attack. And all the replication machinery just stays inside of the genome of the wasp. And so the whole thing is just vertically transmitted. And the reason I said it's not exactly a virus anymore is because it produces replication defective particles that the wasp uses like a biological weapon to attack host insects. I don't know if the virus is doing anything, but what it's yeah, the virus the, is the no host of the 
the host that the virus interacts with is able to strip off what useful pieces of its RNA or DNA to use? Yeah, so the wasp has all of the parts of the virus in its own genome. The whole, the, everything is integrated into the genome of the wasp. So all the viral genes have essentially become wasp genes. Mm-hmm. And this machinery, though, inside of the, of the wasp in cells in the ovaries of female wasps get turned on to make particles that can package genes that get put into those particles. And these particles can, the wasp can inject into a host insect, which is usually the caterpillar of a moth. And these particles can then deliver those genes into the cells of that host insect and express all kinds of things that this wasp egg that also got put into the caterpillar need in order to be able to successfully develop. But every single gene is still inside the genome of the wasp. It's inside the mother who's making these particles and it's inside the wasp egg that got injected into the caterpillar. So all of these genes are essentially just part of the wasp now and they just get transmitted vertically one generation to another. And this is how this thing is maintained for a hundred million years. But it's making a particle that can't sustain itself independently of the wasp anymore so the virus but, the but one, one second if it's if the virus is endogenized in the wasp what right. happens when it reproduces is that kept or is it lost it's not heritable you mean when it makes a particle well at some point the wasp is going to uh i don't know may breed again yeah yeah so the is it is it passed the, off the, to its offspring right so the endogenized virus just gets passed to the offspring just like every other gene it does the, okay and it just maintains itself in perpetuity. But what um, happens if there's another event like this, where the new wasp, is, you know, the, the kids of the, the original wasp that was endogenized then want to have their own progeny or then become infected or the, they, you know, a parasitoid tries to infect them and they are now immune because they have endogenized DNA previously? You mean like another virus tried to invade? Yes, in a successive yeah. generation where it's inherited. Yeah, well, uh, there's actually some evidence that... Um, that independent endogenization events have actually occurred. And so one possibility would be that uh, you end up with another endogenization event and it doesn't establish. There's at least one example. In the, uh, there, there's some suggestion in the literature that maybe in uh, some cases, one endogenization event displaced another endogenization. Mm, that's what I was wondering. Yeah. yeah, and that's kind of what you were getting at. It isn't real clear that that actually occurred, but it's definitely been suggested in the literature. And, um, and you know, you probably maybe talked with other researchers about endogenized viruses. Endogenization yep. of viruses happens all the time. Most of them just become endogenized and die, so to speak. They just decay and, and there's little remnants really? of them. Um, but they don't they don't really persist for um, a, as an intact entity for any length of time. The vast majority so, of so them, their, their their purpose is during the life cycle of the creature that they endogenized in, so they don't tend to carry forth into successive generations. They don't carry forth in successive generations as as an intact entity like the ancestral virus was. They just through genetic drift, they just end up 
accumulating mutations and essentially where there's just little bits and pieces of them over time that are even recognizable. They just decay. That's what happens to most endogenized viruses. What's unique about these polydenoviruses is not only did they endogenize, but they selectionists maintained them where they largely function like the ancestral virus, except for the crucial part of being endogenized and not fully packaging all of their genome into particles anymore. In a way, the, the wasp has domesticated the virus and taken parts of it and used it for its own purposes. Yeah, I didn't know the the relative success the relative success of uh, you know herbs or other endogenized virus retroviruses or viruses and other creatures. Yeah, so retroviruses. I thought they persisted, but I thought just because the virus doesn't need you know all of its uh, genetic all of its genes that it tends to shed them over time to integrate more fully with its host. But you seem yeah. to be saying that they don't they're not as successful as I thought. Right. And most of the time, it's uh, just a big dead end. And uh, it's a dead end for the virus. And um, and as far as anyone knows, it doesn't have any value added fitness benefits for the for the host either. Retroviruses are really pretty special because of their requirement to integrate as part of their replication process. But countless other virus bits and pieces of other viruses that aren't known to integrate into their hosts are found in the genomes of all kinds of different host organisms. And how they got there is not very clear a lot of times, but they're there. And they're just usually decayed bits. And even with nudiviruses in insects, um, there's a number of examples of endogenized nudiviruses that have been found through the sequencing of different insect species in addition to parasitoids. And in most cases, they too are just decayed bits. They haven't been domesticated or co-opted by, in the case of what happened to make polydenoviruses. They're just decayed bits that don't appear to have any utility at all. Um, They're just kind of dead viral pieces in the the genome of the host that they happen to endogenize into. And you can recognize them from the fragments, but it's not an intact virus by any stretch. So what's your research about? What are you studying and trying to figure out? Well, in these kinds of systems, we've spent a, a good bit of time uh, studying uh, how, it is that these, um, how it is that these endogenized viral elements function. How do they produce particles? How do they package these various virulence traits? Um, that are so important to parasitizing hosts. We've spent a lot of energy trying to identify what these various things that get delivered to host insects, these virulence genes that are put into virus particles, what do they do? And why is it that they're so indispensable to the survival of these wasps and enable them, for example, to be a good biological control agent. So that's, at least with the work that we do on polydenoviruses, that's pretty much what we've spent a bit of trying to understand. And then there's... Are a, there, yeah. Go ahead. I was going to say, what, what useful... Is there any, anything useful for the uh, the medical world? Useful for the medical world, as in like... Yeah, that you just, um, yeah for people or for animals, I mean, is there... Are there useful techniques or things that you've learned, you know, vectors to administer medicine, et cetera, drugs? Right. So one thing that has some utility is um, uh, is some of the machinery that controls the integration of these uh, viral DNAs into wasps. One thing I didn't say is that the 
viral DNA, the DNAs that get packaged into virus particles that get put into host insects also integrate into the genome of host insects. And so there's potential for using these things as, um, as uh, uh, vectors for kind of gene therapy, but in arthropods, not in people. And uh, so that's a benefit. Some of, the, um, some of the genes that make the host insect really, they prevent the host from being able to develop or be able to grow into an adult insect, or they're very immunosuppressive. These have been used as tools to disrupt immune functions and developmental functions in insects. And um, so they have, they have potential for use as um, um, in a kind of pesticide sort of way, or as, um, as an analytical tool for understanding um, how certain uh, processes work in invertebrate immunology and development. So those are, um, those are some of the kind of um, applied ramifications for work on these guys. Well, very good. What's the best way for people to find out more about your research? Where can they go? I guess they could go. Um, they could go to a lab website. Um, they could by um, typing a person's name in. It's very easy in a Google search to uh, pull up many, many studies and papers that uh, would describe what I was talking about just now. There are a lot of quite, I think fairly uh, readable reviews, and not written just by myself, but by other people as well, that discuss the diversity of, of these organisms and the different variations that I tried to touch upon. Um, so those are um, very easy ways to kind of gain additional information. And then I'm, you're very familiar, I'm sure, with all kinds of um, databases and the like that you can access that call up uh, literature on a given subject that uh, people any are open to any person anywhere pubmed and um, other uh, other search engines um, are are there for for all citizens okay yeah very good if that's the best way for people to find you that's great so okay well michael thank you for coming on the podcast i appreciate it all righty bye-bye if you like this podcast please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on itunes You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.